only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Today's scripture passage is from Romans 7, uh, verses 13 to 25. That's on page 943 of your Bible, of the Q Bible. And Paul has just said that the law, that Israel's Torah, is holy, righteous, and good. And then he continues in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, give us grace as we come to your word. Give us your wisdom. Give us your spirit. that We might grapple with this word and understand it, and Lord, live it out in our lives by your grace. We pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen. If you're uh, new to our study in Romans, just a brief history of where we've come from in this book. Uh, Paul begins the book of Romans by uh, telling us how every person, whether Jew or Gentile, is under sin and under God's condemnation. And even underscores the fact that the Jews, even though they were the ones you'd think most likely to be exempt, that they are the epitome of sin. And and they, of all people, must have God's mercy, but have rejected God's mercy. He talked about how this mercy has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ and how we've been forgiven and we have a righteous standing before God, not because of anything that we've done at all good, but only because of what Christ has done for us. And so we come to Him As sinners, broken, lost, dark, stained, sinful to the core, and for no reason in ourselves, God declares us 
that we are righteous before Him, that we are accepted, that we are children, that we are forgiven forever, just like that. And that the righteousness of Christ is so identified with us now because we trust in Him that God sees us as joined to Jesus Christ, united to Him and having His standing before God. Amazing. We sinners doing nothing in terms of our own works or goodness, but because we trusted in Christ, immediately we're associated with Jesus Christ forever. Belonging to Him, we belong to God. And as God loves His own Son, He loves us in His Son. Amazing truth. Then, it, in the wake of that, Paul talks about how when sin abounded, grace even abounded more. Talking about, especially in Israel itself, as grace multiplied, uh, I mean, as sin multiplied, grace showed itself magnificently in Christ's death for us. And Paul asked the question at the beginning of chapter 6 then, well, if the increase of sin meant the increase of grace, does that mean that we should just keep sinning? And and he launches into the great section there in chapter 6 that speaks of how this union with Christ that he's already talked about, this being joined to him and having this righteous standing also means that we have died to our old life of sin our life in Adam, our life bound by our selfish desires, self and, and flesh, and we have been resurrected to a whole new world, a whole new creation. We don't belong. We've been set free from this prison, this, this old creation, the old world. We are in a new world of freedom from sin. Not perfect, but a definitive break from our former life. We've been transferred from one place to another. And Along those lines, he even says that we're not under the law anymore. And that's a curious thing, especially for Jews, because they looked at the law as their protection against sin. It's by our our association with the law that we keep ourselves away from the Gentiles. Our association with the law that we distance ourselves from the wickedness of this world. And now Paul says, now you're free from that law. And for a Jew, that would be, well, that spills us out into the middle of this godless world. How can you say that we're not under the law? And he goes on now in chapter 7 to talk about this being separated from uh, the law and to enlarge on the meaning of it. Uh, In the first six verses, he underscores that fact that we died to our relationship with the law and we are now related to Christ. So in verse 5, he says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So... Paul says to be, under, to be under the law is the same thing as being under sin. Now, that would be a further statement that would rile the Jewish nation up to say, how can you say that the law would be the instrument of sin in that way? Now, how can you say that we have to be set free from that? And Paul then begins to, already here, he says in verse 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law. And then he begins to enlarge on that in chapter 7, verse 7, talking about how when the law comes to us, 
It proves how wicked we are because the good law, the good commands of the law come to us and discover just how rebellious we are. When God draws near in the word, in the law, we manifest our colors, our sinfulness, so that uh, it, it actually uses in verses 8 and 11 the phrase that the law took the opportunity or sin took the opportunity of the law. And that in a military terms was a base of operation so that our sin, now not, not sin out here, although sin is viewed as a power and it's personified as a, a force that governs us, but it's our sin. And so the good law comes to me, and what does my sin do? It uses the law as a base of operation so that I multiply my sin. And that's why he ends in verse 13 and says, this is to show how exceedingly sinful sin is. Just what is going on in our hearts. That even when the good law of God, which fundamentally commands us to love God and love others, when it comes to us, our sin uses that as a base of operations to sin even more. How sinful can you get? That's basically what Paul is saying. And in this process, he's also showing it's not the law. Yeah, we have to be set free from the law. Because of what we do to the law, of what the law discovers in us. That's why we have to be set free from the law. Because for us to be bound to the law is just another way that we sin all the more. And it points all the more that the only place of rescue is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can ever begin to live before God is His mighty Holy Spirit taking us owning us, indwelling us, and reshaping and remolding us as human beings. It's the almighty power of God through Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit. That's what we must have, not a code that just shows how bad we are and, and multiplies our sin. So, this is where Paul has come up to this point. Uh, and verse 13, we treated it last week because it's kind of a bridge uh, verse. It, it summarizes 7 through 12, and then it launches into the next section. As your ESV indicates, it's part of the same paragraph. Now, we all anybody that's been a Christian for a while, and some of you may not be believers, you may never, never have had read Romans 7. So I want to just mention something that's a big, big issue here, and that is uh, that in the history of trying to know what Paul's talking about, when he changes to the present tense in verse 14, I am. He was in 7 through 12 talking about I was, I was, I was, and now I am. The big, big question is this. Is he talking here as a Christian or is he talking in some way as a non-Christian? Is this, uh, is he speaking of himself as as Paul, or is he speaking of himself as personifying Israel and making it I, or is he talking about himself as Adam? But in some way, is he talking about a man apart from the Spirit of God, or is he talking about someone who has the Spirit of God, who is a believer? And the battle has raged for centuries. And as I was telling the Sunday school class, and I told the elders this Friday morning, when a brilliant scholar way beyond my capacity lines up both views and then he says 
it is exceedingly difficult to decide between the two. <laughs> You're like, oh, <laughs> well, what am I supposed to do, you know, if, if, if that's the case? But uh, I do have a view, and uh, I had it... I had it actually changed probably uh, 10, now 10 years ago, um, from for years thinking that this was a believer, and now I don't think it's a believer, okay? So that's my view up front. And uh, I have reasons, of course, for thinking this. Now, obviously in a passage like this, if people disagree, there are strong arguments both sides, Right? not going to kid you. There are reasons why people would think that this applies to a Christian. For instance, surely only a believer would say, I delight in the law of God. And for some people, that's an open and shut case. The the unbeliever doesn't delight in in the law of God. So that settles the matter right there. It just can't be. Or for some, the other strong thing is that he speaks in the present tense. And he speaks in the present tense so strongly here, surely that means he's talking about me, Paul, as I am. Uh, I think there, and, and so what you do in a passage like this is say, all right, those are strong arguments, but there are other arguments that I think are even stronger. And so you may say, well, there's some things that make me feel a little uncomfortable with this view, but there are things that make me feel really uncomfortable with that view, okay? It's just, and, and there are not many places in Scripture where it's this way, but this is one of those where there's a lot of uh, struggle in trying to understand it. Of course, I haven't, but some people do struggle. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, believe me, by the very fact that I've changed, it shows my own struggle with it. All right, so in our time that remains, I'm going to give you uh, some of the main reasons that I think this applies to an unbeliever. And I hope then to show how this passage can be an encouragement to you. Now, I'll be taking one thing away with one hand and giving you something with the other hand because classically, believers have, number one, they read this and they say, I just like a woman just a few days ago, and it might have been my wife said, um, when she hear, hears a verse in here, she says, I know what it means because that's what I experience, right? We, and that's a strong argument itself, isn't it? You say, well, this, this describes my struggle many times. So it has to apply to a believer. It just has to, because I struggle this way. And I'll, I'm going to end by saying, yes, in fact, uh, as, as one study shows that Paul likely was using this description of being apart from Christ, using the first person to set an example for people not to live in this way, okay? Um, even believers, because he is addressing this to believers. And so whatever the condition of an unbeliever, certainly believers must not live in the law that way. Certainly believers must live in the Spirit in this way. Uh, but here's how I think it's been misused, and I would want to extricate us from that. Many times people have taken comfort in the wrong way from this passage. And, and some, some teachers of this passage have said, hey, it's just the way it is until we die or Jesus comes again. We're just going to struggle with sin this way and we're just going to be captive. And it leaves you almost feeling like, well, there's no progress in this. Now, some would say, yeah, you got to get out of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. It's better in chapter 8. But they'll still say chapter 7, some would say that just declares the uh, boundaries of our life in 
in the flesh. We're just going to be captive to sin. We're just going to try to do what we want to, but we'll never be able to do it. That's just the way it is. And people even take comfort in, in wallowing in sins for years to say, yeah, you know, Romans 7, that's just the way it is. So I would, I hope I'll give you a different kind of encouragement than that, okay? So I'm going to, we're going to take some encouragement away perhaps, but hopefully we'll give you different kind of encouragement. All right, the first reason I would say that this applies to an unbeliever is the very structure of chapter 7, the structure of his argument. I mentioned this last week, but in verses 5 and 6, uh, I and many others believe he sets the structure of what follows. Verse 5, we were living in the flesh. Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And in this passage, 7 through 25, you hear words like flesh, the law, and death. Okay, Who can deliver me from this body of death? And you're under sin, and you're held captive to this law of sin. So the whole realm of, of sin and flesh and death that he mentions in verse 5, that seems to characterize verses 7 through 25. And there is no mention of the Spirit in, those pass- in that passage. Not one mention of the Spirit. In fact, the only word that relates to the Spirit is that in verse 15 where he says the law is spiritual. So the law is of the Spirit. But I am not. This is not saying I'm spiritual. It's saying the law is spiritual and I'm against it because I'm of the flesh. So it sets up a contradiction between me and that which is spiritual in this passage. Then you jump into Romans 8 and suddenly the Spirit. 18 times the Spirit is mentioned. That seems to mean that verse 6 when he says we're released from the law and now we serve not under the code but in the new life of the Spirit... Surely that must relate to chapter 8 where he says in 8 verse 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Isn't that like verse 6? We're released from the law that held us captive now to serve in the spirit. And especially in verse 8 when uh, chapter 8 he says, now, now there's no condemnation. You've been released. So, To me, that sets out the structure and clearly the person in verse 5, living in the flesh, sinful passions uh, and death relates to an unbeliever. And that's laid out in the rest of chapter 7. And then verse 6 that speaks of the Spirit is uh, chapter 8. And so that's the structure set forth by 5. The flesh and the law on the one side, the Spirit on the other. um, And then also... The structure from verses 13, verse 13 to verse 14. Many, almost everybody would say verses 7 through 13 apply to Paul as an unbeliever. But many would say at verse 14, now he, he's a believer. But there's a four there in verse 14. Uh, as he talks about sin being shown to be sin and the commandment... Uh, makes sin become sinful beyond measure, he is there showing that the, it's not the law, it's me. It's not the law, it's me. And then verse 14, he, he continues in that vein. For, let me further explain what I just said. Let's move forward in our discussion of me and the law and how I'm the problem, not the law. So it destroys that structure, both from verses 5 and 6 and I think verses 13 and 14. Um, so he, he 
then he says, the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh. So again, it's not the law. Uh, in fact, I'm even acknowledging that the law is right, but I can't do the law. I can't obey it. Yeah, the laws beat me down. I, 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 I say that this and this and this, are, these are the right things to do, but I don't do them. I habitually just don't do it. I don't have the capacity to do it. Um, all right, so that's, that's the one, the structure. But even probably more forceful, at least to most people, though I think that is very, very uh, strong. And, and on that basis alone, I just can't fit where Paul would suddenly jump from talking about life under the law, life frustrating, bound by sin and death. And then he says, now let's talk about being in Christ. Frustrating, sin, death. You know, When he's just said, we don't serve that way. We're in the spirit. We've been released from those things. And then the first way he describes the Christian life is sin and death and frustration. I just, I just don't see it. You know, I don't see how... Uh, in the structure and the flow of thought here that Paul would be doing that. But then the description of the person in verses uh, 13 and following. Uh, Number one, uh, that he says there in verse 14, I am of the flesh. I am of the flesh. And the flesh is always man viewed in his difference from God, in his distance from God, left to his own weakness, his own mortality, his own unaided human nature. That's all I am. I'm flesh. And that he defines himself, whoever this is, whether, and we'll talk a little bit about this, that I do think with Douglas Moo and others that Paul is probably picturing the Jewish encounter, the continuing Jewish brokenness before the law. And there's some overtones here of even Adam and even Cain, which we'll talk about later. But... um, but still, just this frustrating encounter with the law of God that he's, he's defined as being in the flesh. But verse 5 says, while we were living in the flesh, okay, as former people apart from Christ, we were living in the flesh. And now he says, I am of the flesh. It just seems natural that, well, he must be speaking of when he was in the flesh, he, now, it's, the, the present tense is like this. If you saw something from a distance, as he does speaking of his first person, but past tense in verses 7 through 12, and now present tense is as though he comes on the scene and enters into the scene. And it's even more graphic, and it brings us right into the middle of it. As they talk about this as a rhetorical device that brings you into it and leads you to say the same thing about yourself. To, to teach you, to instruct you, to take you along this path to realize this is you too apart from the Spirit of God. This is you too in the encounter with the law. I'm speaking for all humanity here ultimately. This is what happens when we try to encounter the law. When we even see that it's right, but we can't do anything about obeying it because we just, that doesn't get to the real issue in our life. So, 7-5, he speaks of uh, being in the flesh. And then in chapter 8, verse 4, notice uh, he says, We walk according, we don't, do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. And then look in verse 6, 
The mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Well, whatever else he says in chapter 7 about liking the, the law of God, he doesn't submit to God's law in chapter 7. That's what he says over and over again. He says, yeah, with my mind, I say, yeah, it's the right thing. But he says, I don't do it. I don't obey it. I don't submit to it. And he says, I'm of the flesh. And I don't submit to it, even though with my mind I say, yeah, I I grant you, I should be doing that, but I don't do it. And so here it seems the very similar language. The mind set on the flesh is death, who will set me free from this body of death. And the mind set on the flesh uh, is hostile to God and does not submit to God's law. And then verse 9, you are not in the flesh. But verse 7, I'm of the flesh. Oh, you're not in the flesh, Paul says to believers. Um, so that, that terminology uh, seems just too strong. Uh, it seems that he's describing someone as he has again and again. Either we were in the flesh or uh, describing those people who were in the flesh before in chapter 8. Um, so that whole realm of flesh leading to death seems to be an unbeliever. Secondly, he has the phrase in chapter 7, uh, verse uh, 23, that he says, I see in my members another law, and this likely is another principle, principle or force that wages war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And members, as you recall, means your full capacity as a human being. So in my full capacity as a human being, there's a law that has made me captive to sin. Now, in the context of Romans 6, which Paul describes over and over and over again, that you are not under sin. You are not captive to sin. But not only does he say captive to sin there, but in verse 14, he says, I am sold under sin. I'm underneath sin. I belong to sin. I've been sold, bought and paid for, owned by sin, enslaved by sin. Where does he ever describe believers in this way? That you're under sin. By the way, you're under sin. Well, I thought I was not under sin anymore. I thought, Paul, you said, I'm not uh, under the law, but I'm under grace. Uh, But now you're saying I am bound to the law and I'm under sin. And so there we would say that this does not seem to be describing those who are believers. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, uh, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay? That describes us uh, contemplating us apart from Christ, not with Christ. And then in Galatians chapter 3, Uh, Verse 22, Paul has a similar phrase. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it contemplates us under sin and released from that situation to be no longer under sin, under its uh, enslavement, under its condemnation. But here he pictures this one as of the flesh, sold under sin, captive uh, to the law of sin. But in fact, chapter 6, verse 2, we have died to sin. 
If we've died to sin, how can we be under sin? If we've been set free from sin, as he says in verse 6 of chapter 6, uh, that we sin would be brought to nothing, that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin, that we'd be set free, as he says again and again in chapter 6. How can now I'm captive again? I thought I was free from sin, but now the first thing he's going to tell me as a Christian, by the way, you're captive to sin. And I and many feel like this is just too strong, and it's not, it's a, it's not the way to interpret this passage. Uh, chapter 6 Uh, Verse 14, sin will not have dominion over you. You're not under law, but you're under grace. But now you're captive to sin. And so, now, it doesn't mean that we have no struggle with sin, of course. That's not the issue, and we'll talk about that. But just to say as a categorical, categorical position, this is who I am now. To say, am I now set free from sin or am I captive to sin? We say as a position, as a fundamental place where I am as a, as a believer, I have been set free from sin. As he says in chapter 6, uh, verse 17, you were once slaves of sin, verse 18, having set, been set free from sin. Again in verse 20 of chapter 6, you were slaves of sin, verse 22, now you've been set free from sin. And so we'd say, that just doesn't seem consistent, that he would say, I'm just captive to sin. I'm just captive to sin. Then there's such a contrast along those lines of sin and the Spirit that after verse 23 when he says, we're captive to sin, and he says in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death, that kind of language, the law of sin and death, he says in chapter 8, Verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How could that not refer to what he says in verse 23? I have this law of sin that makes me captive. But now he says, you've been set free from that law of sin. How? So that's where we say, and this is happy, this is good news to say, This isn't where you are. This doesn't describe your position. Captive, under sin, in the flesh. No, you're in the spirit. You've been set free. You're no longer in that place. You belong to Christ. Thirdly, and and so far, it's just the the whole structure, the the description of being in the flesh and sold under sin. Uh, The third thing, and I've already mentioned this, but many point this out. Uh, there is no mention of the Spirit in the struggle in chapter 7. And you do have that mention in chapter 8 because he does say in verses 12 and 13, Brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, that's struggle. That's warfare. You're putting to death the deeds of the body. You're doing it by the Spirit. But you don't see any mention of the Spirit in chapter 6 and, I mean 7. And the mention of chapter 7, it doesn't talk about you're putting to death the deeds of the body. No, you're held captive to sin. You can't do what you want to do. You may think the law is good, but you can't do it. And that's the, and he just closes the door on it. So that's the end of the story in chapter 7. 
<clears throat> so we think that is a description, continuing description of what happens when unaided human being, as we say, when humanity meets the law, this is what happens. Uh, we, we are killed by it. <clears throat> so in chapter, in, in Galatians 5, this passage is mentioned sometimes to, to prove that uh, Romans 7 applies to believers. But notice the difference in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18. Again, the Spirit is brought into play. The Spirit I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Chapter 7, I'm in the flesh. I'm not obeying God. Okay, Here, by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That is, the flesh will oppose you to keep you from doing what you want to do. But it doesn't say categorically you're in the flesh and you never do what you, is right. You never do what is right. And it brings in the struggle with the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So, uh, again, in both cases, Romans 8 and Galatians 5, the struggle is for believers is spoken of in terms of the Spirit, but the Spirit is absent here because we believe that... Uh, chapter 7, verse 5 gives you the outline for chapter 7, and chapter 7, verse 6 gives you the outline for, for 8. Now, <clears throat> a lot of stuff there, huh? Um, let's talk a little bit about encouragement from this passage. As I said, there's a different kind of encouragement because this does take away and maybe makes you feel like, well, if if I experience this, if I if I have this sense of, I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it. Does that mean I'm an unbeliever now? I at least took comfort that Paul struggled that way. And now I don't have that comfort anymore, so I must not be a believer. You know, that, that's the way it, it feels. Uh, and what, first of all, several commentators have pointed out, this is not so much about Paul, though of course it is, or whoever the I is here, but it's mainly about the law. That's the point of this passage. Is It's not the law, it's me. It's not the law, the law's... I even approve that the law's good. I even say that the law is good, but I can't obey it. I'm the issue, not the law. So it helps us to understand that this is what happens when humanity, unaided flesh, is before the law. Apart from the Spirit of God, apart from Christ's redemption... This is all that we can hope for. And it's interesting that the Greek uh, philosophers, is, the, the phraseology is almost lifted out of Greek statements. You'd be surprised how much like this, time and again, the Greeks, in their struggle to do what is right, say, I want to do the right thing, but I don't. Same thing among the uh, Essenes in the uh, Qumran sect, the the Jewish, they were like the Jewish uh, go-getters, you know, spiritually. They were really uh, seeking to obey God and separated out from uh, the the general Jewish population. But this is their kind of language too. The thing I want to do, I don't do. Um, So we're not saying that you'll never experience this, but get the point of all this. I can never think that it's just me and the code. It's just me and the law. It's just me trying to do the right thing. That's not going to work. 
It's going to kill you always. And Paul is saying it in repetition here. He's putting it in the eye so that you will put yourself in that situation and say, this is what's going to happen to me as well. I will be in the same situation. I must be delivered by one person and one person alone, as he says. Who will deliver me? Is it the law that will deliver me? No, it's Jesus Christ, our Lord, that will deliver me. He's the only one who who will deliver me. And so the first point is stay out of this spirit-less encounter with God's law. Uh, Mark Seifert in his uh, book on justification has a wonderful section in which he shows that this use of the eye uh, in Jewish literature was a, a way to pull people in and that he thinks Paul is proclaiming this to the Roman hearers to say, look, let me set myself as an example. Follow me. Don't give yourself to the law in this way. Set yourself free from the law. Attach yourself. Join yourself to Jesus Christ. Join yourself to His Spirit. That is your only hope. And he makes it graphic by using the first person here. And so it's, a, it's an example, poetic thing to put before them to say, this is not going to do it for you. Secondly, uh, so it's to encourage you to say that uh, you must stay out of, you know, this kind of approach to the law. But to encourage you as well to say, I don't have to live this way. Rather than the encouragement to say, well, at least I know when I live this way that I'm okay. No, no, that's not the encouragement you want. You want the encouragement to say, oh, thank you, Lord God, that you set me free from this. Thank you, Lord God, that there's Romans 8, 2, that the spirit of life has set me free from this law of sin and death. And I can walk in the new life of the spirit so that uh, I can begin to walk out and please God according to the spirit because I was not pleasing God before. Secondly, uh, just to underscore, when he says here that it's no longer I, but sin within me, that's not absolving him from responsibility. Rather, it's saying my sin so owns my personality, it's taken me over. It's taken me over. It dominates me completely. I have no freedom, so to speak, in this way. Sin owns the playing field. It's mopping me up. Every battle, every skirmish, he's saying, I never win. I don't do what the law tells me to do. Um, And... In verse in chapter 6, it talks about the work of Christ. In chapter 8, the work of the Holy Spirit. And freedom is mentioned over and over again. And specifically, in, in both of the... In, in, in chapter 6 and chapter 8, obedience is the issue. And that's the thing I want to underscore to, in, in terms of a final encouragement, is that the domination of sin means if you want to do the right thing and you don't do it, that's not, that's not Christianity. Intention is not Christianity. Obedience is Christianity. Not perfect obedience, but not no obedience, which chapter 7 describes. You know, and somehow we take, well, at least I wanted to do that. I wanted to love my wife. I wanted to discipline my kids, but I just didn't. You say, well, that didn't count for anything. That doesn't matter. If, well, I didn't want to get involved in pornography, but I did. Oh, good, good that you didn't want to. I'm glad you didn't want to. But no, it, 
And so I want to encourage you that what he says in chapter 7 is that, uh, that, that the wanting is there, but the doing is not. But in chapter 8 and chapter 6 as well, it's real obedience from the heart that begins to take hold of our lives. And that's an encouragement for you and for me, not to comfort ourselves that we're wallowing in sin, but to comfort ourselves that God, through the work of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection, and by giving us His Spirit, He sets us free from that turmoil, that treadmill of sin and death and sin and death. Thanks be to God, he says, thanks be to God that I will be delivered by Jesus Christ. But we'll explore that more next week. But again, I hold out to you the only one. It's God's sovereign mercy. It's God's sovereign working in our lives and transforming us. Not us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Not us saying, well, I'm just going to start being different and start obeying God. We must be saved. We must be rescued by His grace. And so He does. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would uh, disconnect us from ideas of our own strength, disconnect us from the way we live our lives so often, Lord, not really in helpless prayer, not really clinging to your word as, as as though it were life itself, not really praying what you've told us to pray, lead me not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Oh, Lord, not trembling, as you say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, not, not thinking that there is, as Peter says, uh, that Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and that we must stand and we must humble ourselves before God. We must depend on your strength, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, because we fight not against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces. And we have to stand strong in your strength, God. None, none other will do. Forgive me. Forgive us that so often it's just us. And we live as though we're in the flesh. We live as though we have no other resources. And we're not counting on anything. And, and we depend on so many other things for our sustenance besides you, instead of you coping and getting through the day with everything but you. Oh, Lord, bless us that we will trust you, that we will look to your goodness and your greatness, that we will have continually remove idols and other dependencies and depend upon the grace of Christ, depend upon the, the worship of the people of God and the fellowship of the people of God through by which the grace of Christ is conveyed to us all the means you've given us, Lord, to rest in you and to taste of you, may we be utterly dependent upon the grace of God. Bless us, Lord, and make us expectant, knowing that you are infinitely more eager to bless us and to set us free and to magnify your grace and glory in our lives than we could ever be to ask for it. Oh, bless us, Lord, to believe you and trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, 
and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?